We're reading from John's Gospel today, John chapter 18, starting at verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have only spoke, I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. At that moment, a cock began to crow. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death that he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. 
In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. On Good Friday, we remember a death. And recently there have been some pretty tragic deaths, haven't there? Sarah Everard, for instance. And I think probably um, all praying people would have prayed for her parents and friends in uh, uh, the terrible days which followed. How awful. And I imagine many praying people will continue to pray for them over the, uh, the coming weeks and months and maybe for years. How you, can you get over that? And of course, over this past year, there have been many, many deaths from COVID, 126,764 in the UK up to today. And every one of them a personal tragedy. Well, this afternoon we come to Christ's death, a 2,000-year-old death, but still remembered today. It was dear old Malcolm Muggeridge said, Christ's death is manifestly the most famous death in history. And Martin Luther, the Reformation theologian, if you want to understand Christianity, you have to look at the wounds of Christ. So clearly what we are considering this afternoon is of huge significance and great importance. And we're going to follow this through John's gospel. And as he wrote his gospel, John was in the habit of, of just making your comment here and there to uh, try and explain a little more of what was happening. And there are, there are three of them which will guide our thoughts this afternoon. Uh, the first one is, was actually the verse before the reading. I, I, it's, uh, it's not Lizzie made a mistake. It's just the, uh, the verse before the reading. Um, so chapter 18 and verse 14 says, Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. And that's our heading for this first section. One man dies for the people. But what sort of people? Well, there are a number of things we can see here. So uh, the first thing I want to point out is this. One man dies for the failing. One man dies for the failing. And uh, Peter's first denial, verses 15 to 18 there. And then his second and third denials in verses 25 through to verse 27. That's so surprising, isn't it? I mean, if there's going to be one person who's going to stand up and be counted, one person you can guarantee to stand firm, you'd think it would be Peter. And yet even he denies even knowing Jesus. And three times he did that, which, of course, in in Jewish thought means that he completely denied Jesus. And at the end of the third denial in verse 27 there... 
Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a cock began to crow. That's it. That's all that John says. He's, he's basically saying, well, draw your own conclusions. Three denials, a perfect failure. But this is not so much about Peter, is it? But it's actually really about all of us. Because if Peter could fail, then I can fail. And you can fail. And we do persistently, don't we? Easily. We let down Jesus. We let down our family. We let down our colleagues. We let down our children. We let down our church. And we do fail. We all do fail from time to time, don't we? Of course we do. We all know that. And one man here dies for the failing. There was a bishop called Stephen Neal, and uh, he called the cross of Christ the dying of God himself. For the failing. One man dies for the failing. And then again, we also see one man dies for the unbelieving. One man dies for the unbelieving. Uh, Chapter 18, verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus before the high priest. That's uh, Annas. And then in verse 24, Annas sends him to the high priest Caiaphas. You can have one high priest, but the, the, the high priest works a bit like ranks in the army. You know, if you're if you're a captain or above in the army, you may keep your title after you retire. And here... Uh, the high priest keeps his title after he retires. So that's why we've got two of them here. Uh, Annas is the current one. Caiaphas is the previous one who had retired but kept the title. And in verse 28, Jesus is taken from Caiaphas to Pilate, the Roman governor. And you can see here, and in chapter 19, uh, the Jewish leaders are just doing everything they can in order to try and get Jesus crucified. They couldn't do it. They wanted him out of the way. They wanted him dead and gone. They couldn't do it themselves because they were in an occupied country. So they had to convince the Romans that Jesus should be crucified. That was the way of execution in those days. Now, Jewish folks can get a really bad press on Good Friday, can't they? Um, But I imagine, you know, um, if we'd been there with them, we'd have been in the crowd baying for Jesus' blood. We would have been amongst the leaders going around and whipping them up and so on. We'd have been just the same. And they were very religious. They were amazingly religious. And this was all happening on one of their big festivals. And uh, uh, Jerusalem's heaving with pilgrims. And verse 18 and verse 28, uh, they won't go into Pilate's palace because they know if they do, they won't be able to to um, uh, join in the festival and eat the Passover meal because they'll be made unclean by mixing with this Roman governor going into his house. The thing is, you know, no matter how how religious we are, it is still possible to be unbelieving when it comes to Jesus. The Jewish leaders are unbelieving. People who come to church can be unbelieving. Because they wouldn't be prepared to believe that Jesus was and is God incarnate. Now back in heaven. But God actually here walking this earth now. And believe that Jesus is the longed for Messiah. And yet, you know, Jesus came for the unbelieving. And he came to take their place. 
And he came to be cursed for them instead of them as he died a cursed death. If you're, if you're taking notes, um, Deuteronomy 21, 22 and 23, if you die on a cross on a tree, you are cursed. And that's the death that Jesus died. One man died for the unbelieving. Then again, we see that one man dies, thirdly here, for the afraid. One man dies for the failing. One man dies, same man, dies for the unbelieving. One man dies for the afraid. What do you make of Pilate? I mean, would you say, for instance, that he was a brutal coward? Or would you say that he was an uncaring cynic? Or would you say that he was a weak jobsworth? Or would you say he was just simply not up to the job? What would you think about? What do you think about Pilate? Well, let's glance forward to chapter 19 and verse 8. When Pilate heard this, we'll come to that, he was even more afraid. Which means that he was afraid beforehand, which means that he would have been afraid, actually, as we're looking here in chapter 18. Probably afraid of the religious powder keg that was Jerusalem during the Jewish festivals. Possibly afraid for his job, possibly afraid for his own life. Because this could turn really sour with the, uh, with the Jewish religious mania that was there during festival time. Just baying for this carpenter's blood. But whatever the truth, whatever the, the cause, there was a whole mixture of things probably in Pilate's life. But he was afraid. And that would have had a huge influence, possibly even dominated his decision-making in terms of what was going to happen to Jesus. And that first Good Friday, Jesus died for the people. And those people included a man who was afraid. Possibly even afraid of Jesus. And you know, whatever our situation, whatever we're facing, whatever our fears today might just be a day to be comforted by the truth that Jesus died for the afraid. One man dies for the afraid. And then there's a fourth thing here. One man dies for the rebellious. One man dies for the rebellious. Just look at um, what happened at the end of chapter 18 here in verses 39 and 40. Um, this is Pilate speaking, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Uh, in Matthew's gospel, we read that Barabbas was a notorious prisoner. Luke's gospel describes him that he was in prison for insurrection and murder. And here in John, we read one of John's comments that Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. He was a rebel. He was a rebel. And Pilate gives the crowd the choice. I mean, it was, there was a tradition that he could release one of the prisoners on the Passover festival. And uh, who do you want released then? Jesus, who is innocent, who is goodness and love and kindness, who is God incarnate, Christians believe. Or shall I release Barabbas, a known rebel? 
And the crowd say, no, not him, give us Barabbas. Monstrous. And yet that is what happened. And in the end, Jesus was crucified. And Barabbas, the rebel, the guilty one, goes free. It's a lovely picture of what the cross is. The cross is a swap. We swap places with Jesus. The rebel and Jesus swapped places. So the rebel had life and Jesus had his death. And that's how it works for us too. One man dies for the people. For the failing, for the unbelieving, for the afraid, for the rebellious. One man dies for the people. There was a North American pastor about to start his sermon when he decided that he would introduce a very old friend of his who was visiting for the weekend and had come to church with him that morning. And uh, this is an old guy and he came to the front and he decided he'd just simply tell a story. He said this, a father, his son, and a friend were sailing off the west coast of America when they were hit by a huge storm. And the boat capsized for uh, just a little while, but the three of them were thrown into the sea. The father grabbed um, a rescue line, clipped himself to the boat, and uh, as it righted itself, uh, then he was able to get back into the cockpit. And then he had a decision to make. Who is he going to throw the line to first? Well, knowing that his son was a Christian and that his son's friend wasn't, he threw the line first to his son's friend and he got him back on board. But while doing that, his son was swept away and they never found his body. And he was later asked if he'd make the same decision again. And, and the father said, oh, yes. It was agonizing, but there was only one decision I could make. It was the right decision. It's my son's in heaven. And his friend would not have been if he had died that day. And then after the service, some teenagers came up to the old man and uh, told him that never happened. No dad would do that. And he smiled at them and he said, well, God did that for us. And that story I told is perfectly true. I am that father. And your pastor here is my son's friend. John chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. 
and they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of the greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. The chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. 
Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Thank you, Lizzie. There's so much here. We're going to focus on one thing. Now, it all looks rather like it's getting out of control, doesn't it? Everything's going wrong. It's going entirely belly up. could almost just not get any worse. It's vicious. It's nasty. It's unjust. It's full of lies. It's manipulative. It's brutal. And it's lethal. So what's going on here? What is going on here? Well, despite how it appears, I just simply want to say this. It's a controlled death. It's a controlled death. But the question is, who is controlling it? And uh, uh, if we, as you read back over that reading, um, <clears throat> chapter 19 and verses 1 to 27, there are various contenders, if you like. It's not quite a competition for who's controlling it, but there are various possibilities. So first one is Pilate. Uh, and from an earthly perspective, and in terms of law and order, he should have been controlling it. He should have been preventing this happen. I mean, he, he, he says he, he, he knows Jesus is innocent. So at the end of verse, uh, verse 6, for instance, Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis of a charge against him. And then in verse 12, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But he's under a lot of pressure. And would you like to have been in Pilate's sandals? I wouldn't. A baying crowd, buoyed up by religious commitments, and he's losing control. He might not just be control that he loses, he might lose his job. He might lose his life. And in the meantime, again, he's confronted by this carpenter from Nazareth who makes him, the governor, feel really uneasy. I mean, just look at verse 11, for instance. Jesus answered, you'd have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And the uh, trial in inverted commas, of Jesus, becomes for Pilate the trial before Jesus. And Pilate has every reason to be afraid, very afraid. He's trying to control things, but despite his conviction that Jesus is innocent, in the end, in chapter 19 and verse 16, we read this, finally Pilate handed him over to be crucified. Do you know what? I think every single one of us would have done the same. A controlled death. But not actually really controlled by Pilate, was it? How about the religious leaders? How about the religious leaders? Uh, someone wrote this, Jesus Christ, a, fu a fugitive, misunderstood, rejected, laughed at, betrayed, forsaken, unjustly convicted, and executed on a lie. 
on a lie perpetrated by the most religious people. They were trying to control things, and to some degree, of course, they were successful, weren't they? They wanted, crucif- they wanted Jesus crucified, and they got Jesus crucified. And you can see them at work here. You look at verses in chapter 19, look at verse 6 or verse 7 or, well, let's look at verse 12, for instance. For Nino and Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. They knew how to get Pilate worried. And then verse 15 and verse 16 and so on. Hardly a reasoned argument, more mob rule, but it worked. It certainly worked. And even if it was outrageous, and even if it makes your blood boil as it does mine, but were they really in control? Well, I would say no. They thought they were getting their way, but actually they were doing the will of Jesus. So then how about Jesus? Is he in control of his own trial? (laughs) Extraordinarily, the answer to that is yes. Of his own conviction? Yes, in control of his own death. Undoubtedly, yes. Don't just glance back to chapter 18, Jesus before Pilate. Um, you can have a look there in verses 33 and 34, but then look at verse 36 and, th- and verse 37. Verse 36, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Jesus, the king. And in control, even of this. And uh, can you see that in fulfilling scripture that Jesus is expressing, he's showing his control. So, for instance, uh, into chapter 19 and verse 24, for instance. Let's not tear it. This is about uh, Jesus, uh, his garment there. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. The scriptures written centuries before that they might be fulfilled on the day of Jesus' crucifixion. They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Another one of John's little comments. Of course they did. It's in the scriptures. It's going to happen. So the soldiers are not in charge. The religious leaders are not in control. Pilate's not in control. Jesus and his heavenly father are in absolute and total control over Jesus' death. In every moment and every decision and every little detail. They are orchestrating this. It is a deliberate And a purposeful death. It is a deliberate and purposeful self-sacrifice. And in the midst of all this, it is still deeply personal. Almost all deaths are, aren't they? Certainly for the person involved but also for those close to them. And Jesus' death is no exception. 
So we look at chapter 19 here and verses 25 to 27, the uh, of deeply personal touch. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there, and disciple whom he loved, that's most likely John, standing nearby, he said to a woman, here is your son, and the disciple, here is your mother. A deeply personal touch. In... Um, 1952, February the 6th, King George VI died peacefully in his sleep at Sandringham. And then on the 15th, the king was laid to rest in the vault of his ancestors at St. George's Chapel in Windsor. And the coffin containing the king's body had been lying in state at Westminster Hall in, in uh, the middle of London. And as the coffin left Westminster on a gun carriage, Big Ben ran out, rang out one beat a minute to mark the 56 years of the king's life. And as the solemn cortege passed Marlborough House, there was a poignant moment. Queen Mary, the king's mother, appeared at a window across which a blind was, was kind of half pulled back. And she bowed her head. The king was the third of her son's to die and Jesus too a very personal death very public but also very personal and it was also a death which he controlled to the very last detail we carry on in John chapter 19 where we left off Verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened uh, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, 
they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 35 kilograms. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was according with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Thanks, Lizzie, for reading for us today. Well, towards the end of his uh, gospel, and actually we just saw it in that reading there as well, didn't we, in verse uh, 35, he knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. And towards the end of his gospel, um, just on uh, verse 30 of chapter 20, John says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So just in this last little talk, a death to believe in. A death to believe in. John makes another comment in verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And uh, um, when you see that word finished there in verse 28, it comes again when Jesus died in verse 30. Just before he died, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. Same word, uh, the same root. And it means accomplished or achieved. So if we think Jesus' death is a death to believe in, there are three things to uh, believe about it. And the first thing I want to say is believe it's complete. Believe it's complete, that it's a finished job, that he has accomplished something through it. He's achieved something through it. He's done what he intended to do. But what does this mean? It's very odd, isn't it? I mean, it really is very strange. Whoever spoke of their own death and said moments before their last breath job done it is accomplished what was the job what has been accomplished through Jesus death the payment of the price for human sin and rebellion against their creator we all stand before God guilty And we deserve to die for this rebellion. That's the price. Our death. But the glorious truth of Good Friday is that when Jesus died, he died our death. He paid our price. All of it. 
for all of us. And with just about his last breath, he said, it is finished. He could have said paid in full, completely. And how wonderful is that? Australian guy called John Dixon, writing about the cross, uh, wrote this. According to the gospel writers, Jesus' death is a solution to the problem of our guilt before God. On the cross, Jesus accepted what we deserved. He took our punishment upon himself. That is, Jesus could rescue men and women only by dealing with our problem. He could give life to each person only by dying. He could bring forgiveness to us only by being condemned. Blameless Jesus took responsibility for accused humanity. Believe it's complete. Second, believe it's fulfilled. There are lots of times surrounding Jesus' death. Uh, We've seen a couple of them already. Uh, The Bible tells us this happened to fulfill this particular part of the Old Testament. So verses 31 and 32, for instance, about uh, uh, that little account there, the fact that Jesus didn't have his legs broken. If they wanted to end the crucifixion quickly... They would take a large mallet, a big mallet, and break your femur, your thigh bone, so that you wouldn't be able to push up and therefore be able to breathe, and then you would die more quickly because effectively you would suffocate. Sorry about the gruesome details. But actually, what we see here is in verse 36, it says, there was a scripture that says, not one of his bones will be broken. And that's... If you've got one of our church Bibles, just at the bottom there, it's, that's there in Exodus and Numbers and Psalm 34. And so that's why they shoved a spear into Jesus' side, just to make sure that he had died. So believe it's fulfilled, that God was actually overruling. We've seen this. God was overruling all this to bring forgiveness and healing and the removal of guilt and sin for all who believe in him. On the cross of Calvary extraordinary things were going on profound things as jesus paid the price for humanity's fall from god it was being directed to the last detail by god in heaven and then the third thing to believe is believe it's temporary Believe it's temporary. Easter Sunday is coming. Believe it's complete. Believe it's fulfilled. And believe it's temporary. And here, just in that last little chunk about the burial of Jesus. Christians believe Jesus did not stay dead. And you can see how all this is looking forward to Sunday, to to Easter Sunday. Now, Jesus was dead. That's important. We're not talking about a resuscitation on Sunday. He was actually dead. 
And then we, as we read here that Jesus' body was taken away, that's important. That Nicodemus brings the spices, that's important for Easter Sunday. That Jesus' body was wrapped in grave clothes, that's important for Easter Sunday. It's in a tomb in a garden. They went to the tomb, they went to the right place, they saw where it was, that's important for Easter Sunday. He was laid there on Good Friday before it got dark, and on the f- that was on the first day of the week, and Easter Sunday morning was the third day when he was raised again from the dead. We so much look forward to Easter Sunday. In 1804, there were two explorers, Captain George Clark and Captain Meriwether Lewis, I think you could only be called Meriwether Lewis in the 19th century, probably. But anyway, they were, they were sent by President Thomas Jefferson to find a way from St. Louis in the middle of the states over to the, uh, the Pacific coast. Uh, and such an exploration required a huge preparation, lots of provisions, good planning, decisions, and so on, and actually quite significant danger. And then when they returned two years later uh, in 1806, Uh, It was as if the whole of the American West had been opened up. They were effectively, they were, well, they were, they were pioneers opening up the country, opening up the rest of the United States. And in his death, Jesus has been a pioneer, opening up a new spiritual country. He's made heaven possible for you and for me through his death. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. The country of heaven is opened up for all who choose to go there. And we know that this is a victorious death, a successful death, a death that has achieved that because of Jesus' resurrection. If he hadn't raised, hadn't been raised, we would be in a a futile existence and with a desperate future ahead of us. But Jesus did it. He accomplished it through his death. As one man dies for the people. A controlled death. And a death for us all to believe in.